This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and indeed around the rest of the world. And I think even more than usual, we are going to be cramming in a heck of a lot in our time together. Uh, some brilliant questions on Israel, Gaza, and many other topics too. Um, and I will be reflecting, if it's okay with you at the beginning, but it kind of segues into Israel, Gaza, and Keir Starmer's current uh, position via the COVID inquiry, and what we can learn in terms of domestic British politics more widely, because by the time you hear this, there will be more evidence, I think, which will alarm us all. It's really worth following the COVID inquiry. This week, it's going to generate a lot of headlines, but it deserves to have done so already. Um, before all of that, oh yeah, and by the way, questions on all kinds of things like, uh, would I have ever wanted to be an MP? I'm going to get to that question this week. And for those of you who missed it, there was an extra podcast at the end of last week, a kind of question time special, because I'm getting so many questions at the moment that uh, we needed that kind of space just to reflect some of those. And there are responses to one of the questions I began with in that Question Time special from Canon Paul Arbuthnot in Dublin, who forensically argued that there are very few parallels that we can cling to uh, in relation to Northern Ireland and what's going on at the moment with Israel, Gaza. Uh, so quite a few, yeah, he, he's, he generates controversy and, and there are quite a few responses to that, amongst many other things. A um, couple of notices. First of all, thank you to all of those in the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative who alerted me to the fact that um, our person to watch, Lee Rowley, was on Question Time on BBC One uh, on Thursday. Uh, James Munro emailed, many of you tweeted, so you've got to tune in to Question Time. He's on, Lee Rowley. Now, new listeners wondering... Have we all gone bonkers? Uh, there is a background to this that uh, at one of the live shows, someone suggested Lee Rowley, watch out for him. He's in the red wall. He could kind of rise a bit. And uh, the next week he was in government in a junior ministerial role. And so ever since we've worked on the assumption that Lee Rowley can rise and rise, um, not, you know, burdened with talent, but just kind of rising. Anyway, I I don't watch Question Time, and I couldn't even face it to see Lee Rowley, but I saw the clip. Some of you showed me the clips of Lee Rowley putting the case for various things with a, a oratorical, spellbinding, mesmerizing uh, quality that 
pointed only ever upwards for Lee Rowley. We've got to keep watching him. We've got Lee Rowley correspondents, uh, listeners in his constituency, who will keep us informed. A couple of other things. Um, uh, next week, for those of you who kindly subscribe to Patreon, I'll tell you about what the bonus will be in November, along with all the other kind of things you can get through subscribing to Patreon. Thank you for doing so, as ever. Um, and, yeah, Rock and Roll Politics, the next live show, most of you will have heard this by the time I've done the live show at the legendary Rope Tackle on Wednesday, November the 1st, um, will be the Christmas special at King's Place, which is live on December the 18th. Um, I think I mentioned it last week, but the tickets weren't on sale uh, on the, their website, the King's Place website. They are now on sale. Uh, so do book them because we always have a bit of fun, a few drinks, and we've got to look back at this crazy year and look ahead too. Uh, so, oh yeah, yeah, lots going on. One of the things going on is the COVID inquiry. And in a way, what we are learning from the uh, forensic interrogation of the key players in number 10 is what we already knew, that Britain was being ruled recklessly by a dysfunctional number 10 um, at a point of arguably the greatest danger since the Second World War. And the dysfunctionality is unforgivable on many different levels, um, not least the one that, in a way, the UK was in a more privileged position or a less vulnerable one than the rest of Europe because it had notice. I remember when um, COVID was raging across Spain and Italy, um, people, you know, who aren't always um, an accurate narrator when following the rhythm of events, people like George Osborne saying, what is happening in Italy now will be facing the UK in two or three weeks' time. It was then that Johnson famously went off to Chequers to sort out his divorce and write his book on Shakespeare or whatever. Uh, but what we get more clearly from this COVID inquiry is just the sheer scale of dysfunctionality, the degree to which... Um, Officials were as aware as Cummings, uh, a special advisor, of course, of monumental influence, um, how useless Johnson was and how dangerously useless Johnson was. So you have the extraordinary threat thing based on WhatsApp texts of the cabinet secretary, Simon Case, kind of siding with the advisers in despair about Johnson, the Prime Minister. And there are many other examples of how utterly dysfunctional it is. Remember, Johnson, in the end, made the calls. And yet, part of the dysfunctionality were his mighty special advisers, especially Cummings, and others trying to make calls that he did not want to make. Um, and yet... And this is what I want to explore. For a long period of time, he got away with it. And the reason he got away with it, the dangerous, and it's not an exaggeration to say fatal chaos, 
at the heart of number 10. Uh, Johnson survived for so long because he was popular. And this tells us, I think, a lot about leadership and the limited constraints on leaders in the United Kingdom when they are popular, when polls suggest they are election winners. And you can see how this is going to lead perhaps to Keir Starmer in a few moments. Everyone in number 10 knew Johnson was not up to the task of uh, leading a country through, as I say, the greatest danger since the Second World War. Uh, but he appeared to be an election winner. He had won that near landslide in December 2019, months before COVID struck. Um, and then, in spite of the mounting death toll in the United Kingdom, there was a sense of a government besieged and therefore worthy to some extent of support. But what is so interesting is that under different circumstances, we know a cabinet can rise and remove a prime minister because they did it with Johnson. The reason they didn't in uh, when COVID struck in 2020 and going on into 2021 uh, was his popularity. So we will find out more and more as this inquiry goes on that those who knew he was utterly unsuited for the titanic task of leadership at, at any point, frankly, in a country's history, but especially this one, would have included many members of the cabinet. And yet he was at this point unchallenged. There were no criticisms in the cabinet uh, of uh, how they were approaching the COVID challenge. Uh, the opposite, uh, consent to, in the end, whatever he was proposing to do via the chaotic discussions he was having with advisors and officials. Popularity gives a leader the space to do what they want. And in a way, this peaked with the by-election in Hartlepool in uh, the spring of 2021. I think, by the way, uh, although he wouldn't want to have gone through it or ever experienced such a nightmare again, the fact that Johnson caught COVID helped him hugely in terms of public perceptions. A figure who it was seen risked his life in his uh, sense of prime ministerial duty. That wasn't quite what it was. It was just that he didn't really believe that COVID was as serious as it was. And number 10 was continuing with very little protection. He famously said he was shaking hands with everyone and all the rest of it. So actually, there were other lessons to learn from the fact that so many in number 10 caught COVID, including Johnson. But in public perception terms, it helped. And I think the Hartlepool by-election in 2021 becomes one of the more consequential by-elections in modern times. For Johnson, 
it gave him the space to do what he wanted. Uh, behind the scenes, as this inquiry is making vividly clear, officials at the most senior level and his special advisors were in despair. But he could not be stopped or constrained because uh, Johnson was so popular. To gain a by-election, uh, Hartlepool, which was Labour, um, in the midst of all those challenges, uh, was an electoral triumph. And Johnson went to Hartlepool. He was far more bothered about that than the implementation of policy. He went to Hartlepool several times. It was obvious. You can still see footage on YouTube. Uh, voters just loved him. And that gave him complete authority. And so while there was this dangerously uh, ill-functioning government and number 10, uh, he was politically impregnable. I remember saying at the time he was more powerful than Blair uh, and Thatcher because those two were uh, to some extent constrained by others. Uh, Blair always by Gordon Brown watching his every move and Thatcher by a cabinet that didn't always agree with her and was willing to challenge her. It was a cabinet, remember, of uh, the likes of Michael Heseltine and uh, Jeffrey Howe and Nigel Lawson, people who were quite capable of challenging her impulsive instincts. Uh, Johnson's cabinet, no one. They were all dependent on him and they were more fearful of him after that Hartlepool by-election. He continued to rule with the same haphazard, dangerous, cavalier approach, but the degree of his omnipotence was extraordinary. Uh, there were no constraints. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Hartlepool was consequential for another reason, too. And that was uh, Keir Starmer's response. Uh, he was in despair after Hartlepool, and he knew how dangerous Johnson was as a leader and how haphazard, and yet he saw voters turn to him. And in a way, he panicked. I think the right conclusion uh, from the Hartlepool by-election uh, was that uh, Johnson was in a kind of oddly freakish place. Um, a war leader, in effect. COVID was a kind of war. Um, a person seen to be, in inverted commas, delivering Brexit, which Hartlepool wanted. Most of them, anyway. Um, and by the way, that was another thing, which read what was going on vis-a-vis uh, -vis COVID uh, in relation to this COVID inquiry. 
The other thing that Johnson was up to during the period of COVID was the Brexit deal. And that too uh, was conducted as haphazardly and without any scrutiny from the cabinet in the same way as his chaotic approach to COVID. In some ways, it was worse. There should be a Brexit inquiry, because what that would expose, I think, is quite extraordinary. Uh, At least with COVID, there were uh, people like Dominic Cummings uh, trying to convince Johnson of the dangers. Uh, And there were other figures like Sunak, you know, kind of finessing Johnson's libertarian instincts dangerously. And Sunak will come out really badly from this inquiry, and justifiably so. Um, But with uh, Brexit, there were no senior officials, advisors, warning Johnson to do X, Y, and Z, not to do that. It was him and Frost together negotiating a catastrophic deal between the EU and the UK. And this was running in parallel with all the chaos of COVID. And Johnson, with his limited attention span, would have struggled with COVID, but he was meant to be doing Brexit as well. And of course, such was his limited attention span. Um, It gave this maniac Frost the space to do quite a lot of it himself. And he was trying to please Johnson Uh, But he was never quite sure what that meant beyond being hard on the Europeans and that kind of thing, wearing his Union Jack socks. So these two things were happening in parallel when the cabinet were too scared to challenge Johnson on either of them because he was popular. Going back to Starmer and his response to the Hartlepool by-election. See, I think... um, uh, Johnson was kind of fated to be popular fleetingly at that point. The war leader who was also delivering what the voters wanted on Brexit. It wasn't really what they wanted, but what they thought they wanted. They didn't know what they were getting. Uh, and I think they beginning to learn now. But Starmer thought it was about him and his uh, style of leadership um, that he was so lacking in political experience, he would need to change. And he opted really for a kind of, in inverted commas, winning by numbers approach after Hartlepool. Uh, If he himself did not have the instinctive ability, as he saw it, to win a by-election like Hartlepool, he would have to lead through other means. And those other means became focus groups. Um, If he wasn't sure by instinct what to say or do to win, he would be told by the focus groups what to say and do. Um, And he would also turn to those who knew how to win elections in 97, etc. Tony Blair, Peter Mandelson, uh, and get their advice as to how to lead. I think those, uh, and, and get their people in. Uh, his office. So part of his office now has people who worked for Tony Blair in that sort of post-97 era. And so those were the two very drastic moves he made. And 
Yet politics and winning and governing is very, very complex and multi-layered. And there isn't a painting by numbers route to these things. Um, uh, he, he might, uh, although I wonder at the moment quite what he's thinking about the advice he has received in recent times. We'll come to that in a moment. Um, he might look at that huge poll lead and conclude that the moves he made basically articulating what focus groups tell them to articulate, uh, veto stuff that doesn't get the thumbs up in a focus group, um, and follow the advice of Tony Blair and those who worked for him, uh, has worked a dream. There they are, miles ahead in the polls. But to be honest, uh, though the way he, um, Keir Starmer has taking control of the Labour Party is an example of quite phenomenal administrative skills and ruthlessness. Um, I think I mentioned Neil Kinnock, who is not an uncritical observer of what's going on, is in awe of the way Starmer has managed to take control of the Labour Party. Neil Kinnock knows how difficult that particular task is. But I suspect frankly, that what followed Hartlepool with Johnson uh, and then Truss and then Sunak means that, frankly, uh, Labour would be miles ahead under any leader who was approaching his or her first election. Uh, Keir Starmer and his office have faced what I think Tory historians will argue in a 100 years' time were the three worst prime ministers in the Conservative Party's history. And when voters turn, they turn. And it wasn't long before people did begin to see what Johnson and that dysfunctional number 10 were really like, etc, etc. And the problem by reacting in the way that Kirstama did to Hartlepool is uh, manifesting itself in the uh, Israel-Gaza situation now. That LBC interview he gave, and by the way, I, I, I know I'm blowing my own trumpet here, and I did it last week, but I did say in this podcast, and, and we in the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative uh, know that if you delve deep, you need to get beyond uh, the immediate verdicts of the media commentariat, which is nearly always wrong. And I did say that um, when the media commentariat were hailing uh, Keir's approach to the Israel-Gaza nightmare and saying, at last, you know, thank God there's a grown-up in charge and this is so prime ministerial and all the things, and it's brave and courageous and disciplined and all the rest of it, I sense trouble. And, uh, God, it, it is there trouble now. The LBC interview is 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 fascinating because it's being described in, in, in some quarters as a blunder. But was it a blunder? What what happened to make Keir Starmer uh, respond to a question by saying, yes, they do have the right, Israel, to block water and energy or food supplies to uh, uh, Gaza? And... Some people say to me that, you know, some sh people in the shadow camp say to me, uh, because he is now so used to uh, 
articulating what focus groups have told him to articulate that the the nightmare of Israel Gaza had not been focus grouped at that point so you know he, it, he just got into a mess over it others say to me that um, he is now so used to saying things that he doesn't personally believe that he just went kind of over the top with this one um, that as a lawyer with a deep awareness of international law he would have known personally uh, that to sort of facilitate potential genocide could be uh, outside the remit of international law. But he wanted to show that he was leading this change Labour Party. I must not be Corbyn. I will not be Corbyn. So he kind of overcompensated because he's so used to doing it, even though as an individual, he would not endorse uh, the potential starvation and deaths of innocent civilians by blocking off food and energy and water and so on um because he's done it so many other times before uh not said what he really believes um another uh person said to me this is probably what he does believe although i find that kind of quite hard to take but others tell me he's getting advice from tony blair and that is not a good source to get advice from on the Middle East and Israel. And by the way, you know, where people have talked a lot about the uh, time in the sort of last phase of Blair's leadership when um, he was uh, overtly pro-Israel in another conflict with Hezbollah and he was absolutely kind of taking Israel's side that the, the the cabinet ministers who challenged him were just like now a whole range it was david miliband who you know who adores blair who challenged uh, blair's stance at that time uh, uh for example others were doing so as well but what is clear also with that lbc interview is that they clearly hadn't done what you must do before these interviews his office of sort of game planned it all um you know so what do you do if you're asked about this potential war crime or this potential war crime what do you say we're going to come on to questions in a moment where there are examples of many other leaders who've managed this with great sensitivity um and it's another reminder that the rhythms of news, you've got to have someone in that office with a reader of rhythms of news. Tony Blair used, uh, once said to me of Alistair Campbell, he said it to me, he'd been prime minister for a few months. He thought uh, Alistair was a genius at reading the rhythms of news. Alistair would be able to tell him how long a news story would last for, um, whether uh, it was going to cause real trouble or limited trouble. And, of course, they would uh, be able to work out what shape interviewers uh, were going to develop their line of questioning and so on. Um, so there's, it, it raises many different issues. But I think the route taken since that Hartlepool by-election has been too rigid, uh, too lacking in awareness of the kind of layers of politics. 
Um, but some of you have emailed saying, you know, what are going to be, what's the electoral impact of this? My guess is, and it's only a guess, it, I don't think it will be great, actually. Uh, some people who might have voted Labour will not vote Labour on the basis of this, some Muslim Labour supporters and so on. But I suspect the turnout will be quite low anyway at the election because there isn't enthusiasm for Labour. But I think the anti-Tory mood is remains so strong uh, that the impact on the general election will be limited. But at this point anyway, unless there is change at the top of the Labour Party, I think the incoming government, and in particular the incoming Prime Minister, will arrive with a level of goodwill which is lower than any Prime Minister in recent times. Um, there needs to be a, a recalibration on, on several different levels. Um, and in a way, this is a kind of wake-up call. And by the way, the other thing that really disturbed me was those words were said on LBC for whatever reason, and I don't know the reason. Um, and by the way, a, another reason could have just been sheer exhaustion. It was probably about the 50th interview he had done that day. Um, but they were said, and to then sort of deny that they were said, and incidentally to do that kind of seven or eight days after the words were said, these raise deeper issues. And Kirstama has been lucky. Britain's been very unlucky, but he's been lucky to face the three weakest prime ministers and Sunak shows a very limited political skill. Um, but events come along that really provide tests of leadership. And um, not in the way that some Tory papers will frame it. Uh, and perhaps Tony Blair has framed, oh, yeah, yeah, be tough, Keir, you know, stick to it, um, show, take on your party, show, you know, all the kind of usual cliches. Um, it, it's, it's all, politics is more subtle and complex than that. And Blair never used to do it in quite the way that his devotees and perhaps Blair himself thinks he did. It's very interesting if you read Chris Mullins' diaries, uh, Chris Mullin uh, was, of course, a junior minister. He wrote hilarious diaries about the impotence or powerlessness of being a junior minister. But Chris Mullin came from the left of the Labour Party. He was a Benite uh, in the early 80s, helped to run Tony Benn's deputy leadership campaign in 1981. He was editor of Tribune at the time. Uh, and Blair knew that people like Mullin had to be kept on board. Uh, Mullin had a position, a senior position, representing backbenchers in the Labour Party at one point. And there was constant dialogue, and, and, and Mullin came to greatly respect Blair for the engagement. He called him the boss, famously, but Blair knew he had to do it. He, he did it with the likes of Dennis Skinner, who had a, a fondness for... Blair and even Ken Livingstone. The, the, the one example of Blair taking on an individual was he, he stopped Ken Livingstone standing for Labour uh, as the mayor of London. Ken Livingstone won it as an independent and then became Labour again. But even when he was being shafted by Blair, Ken Livingstone said that he found it quite easy to engage with Blair and talk with Blair. So Blair didn't do this thing of... Um, 
kind of just, in inverted commas, taking on these people. Of course, by the end, uh, he was in that uh, odd state of mind post-Iraq. I just do what is the right thing to do. Um, But um, anyway, uh, I think many... Uh, issues. This is, of course, parochial, the British political issue. But we're going to return to your questions in a second. Uh, well, now, actually, yeah, why wait? Uh, where we uh, range much more widely on the Middle East and other matters. So let's do that. Let's do that. The uh, email address, if you want to join our never-ending debate, Bob Dylan might be on a never-ending tour. So am I, by the way. Um, but we are on a never-ending debate in the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative. It's steverick14 at iCloud.com. And um, that's steverick14 at iCloud.com. And I'm going to begin. I've had quite a lot of lengthy emails on Israel-Gaza. And incidentally, a lot of you are sending me very useful links to various bits of brilliant writing and so on. What I'm thinking of doing when I can get my act together is maybe we could get a Rock and Roll Politics podcast website to put some of these links, because obviously I haven't got time to read out the links as well. Anyway, let's go to uh, Kate Clark, who writes in reference to the original Labour response to all of this, the Keir Starmer LBC, the David Lammy, the Emily Thornbury. Uh, Kate Clark writes, these uh, are lawyers. They were equivocating about what they knew to be illegal, or at least had to be precise about the need for Israel to distinguish between civilians and combatants. But also they gave their full public backing to the most right-wing government in Israel's history. If only Labour had said at the beginning what it's starting to say now, but that needed bravery, principles, consideration about how the situation could develop, and insight into Israeli politics. Um, And I'll I'll move on to something else uh, uh, Kate Clark writes in a second, but exactly right. You see, at that Labour conference in Liverpool with their early uh, responses, you know, the media commentariat. It's bad for Labour to keep following the media commentariat. And you, they think if you've got the thumbs up from the commentariat, you're doing the right thing. You're nearly always doing the wrong thing in terms of your own kind of electoral strength. Because everyone was saying at the time, you know, the, the, the apparent uh, kind of hawkish support for Israel was brave, principled, and all the rest of it. But it wasn't. It was very calculated, uh, but uh, the calculations didn't go deep enough. They should delve deep, always, uh, Keir's office, and it didn't go deep enough. Now, Kay Clark then quotes a statement from uh, President Higgins in Ireland on uh, Israel and Gaza, and it was made two days after the hell of the 7th of October attack on Israel. And this is when, you know, at times Kisama was sounding more, what's the right term, um, determined to show his support uh, for Israel. Anyway, she said what President Higgins of Ireland uh, said is something that Keir could have followed. I haven't got time to read out the whole thing. And remember, last week, we got a great uh, email uh, linking to Obama's response 
which was again, you know, these people have language, and language is so important in responding to these things. Anyway, this was on the 9th of October, only two days afterwards. Any attacks on innocent civilians, such as those horrific scenes witnessed at the Supernova Music Festival and elsewhere, are deeply reprehensible. Further attacks and reprisals of the same degree will lead to further loss of innocent life. Such actions will not lead to such a constructive approach as might achieve the necessary conditions for the coexistence of all in conditions of peace for which we must aspire. Diplomatic failure to meaningfully address a conflict, one that's been raised every year at the UN, is bearing a terrible fruit for all those involved. Um, it goes on to say, those international voices have called for an end to the further loss of civilian life, for restraint. Realise how difficult this is to achieve. Yet, if out of the worst of circumstances, something is to be achieved, it requires an immediate, urgent engagement by neighbours and the international bodies so as to achieve the ceasing of attacks on communities and their civilian infrastructure. So that was a response from Ireland. Uh, Kate Clark adds, I lived in the West Bank in the late 1980s. It was a time of hope, the first Palestinian intifada and a lot of cross lines piecework. The Oslo Accords followed. Uh, one reason why there isn't peace, the 30 years following the Oslo Accords were characterised by a significant expansion of the settler population in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. Um, so, you know, there's one kind of outline of how uh, complex this is and a response from Ireland, which is incidentally now kind of garnering more support over this debate about uh, whether there should be a ceasefire and what the difference is between that and a humanitarian pause. Uh, in this podcast, we explore language and I'm going to do a podcast at some point soon exploring the language of this war um, because the language has been disingenuous at every uh, point. Anyway, thank you, uh, Kate Clark. Gail Johnson uh, writes, uh, oh, yeah, that's great. She, uh, she said, the podcast keep my brain going while I'm running in Berkhamsted. Um, uh, well, I hope it gets you running faster, Gail, you know, and, and longer uh, in Berkhamsted. I was struck uh, by the last item that you discussed in the most recent podcast, prompted by a listener who had left the Labour Party, in part because of Keir Starmer's response to the war in Gaza. This is clearly someone who is committed to politics and who has acted in a principled way. But you're always reminding us that most of the electorate aren't interested in politics. And I wonder two things. First, is it safe to assume that this particular difficulty is not going to be fatal to Starmer in terms of party support at this stage on the route to the election? And second, if it is safe to assume that, will the electorate as a whole be concerned about it? Um, uh, yeah, and Gail asks about a live stream for uh, Patreon subscribers. Uh, Gail, I'll, I'll make be making an announcement next week on what's coming up in uh, Patreon. In terms of your wider point, well, I think I addressed it briefly in my kind of opening thoughts. Um, my guess is, and it's only a guess, that this will not have a big impact on the general election. 
but on Keir Starmer's leadership, I think these are testing days, most specifically how he responds. And, and there are indications now that there is a kind of a, a kind of a, an approach whereby people can speak as they see it. So you've had the mayors, although he couldn't stop them anyway. Uh, coming out calling for a ceasefire. You have front benches calling for a ceasefire, and they're not going to be sacked for doing so. There's not going to be this sort of, you know, machismo. I'm 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 showing I'm being prime ministerial by sacking people who don't toe the line. He can't do that because it involves too many. Um, so there is uh, uh, if you like, an enforced kind of pragmatism taking place as we uh, speak. But that needs to kind of develop into something. And and he cannot appear too hardline because he might himself have to change his approach. And we know Keir is perfectly capable of changing tack. Um, so anyway, I think it is a big test of his leadership in the coming days, but more widely. There are lessons to be learned from uh, very basic things, like how you prepare for an interview. Uh, it was obvious that Nick Ferrari and others were going to ask such questions. Uh, to how you, when you do screw up, if it was a blunder or what, what, whatever, say whatever was meant by it, how you then deal with it, uh, and how it came about in the first place. You know what? What? What are you trying to do by defining? your party against the party's immediate past? Do you think that's enough? Do you think that can then lead to trouble? And if so, how do you deal with that? And loads of things. So uh, much comes from it, and it comes at, of course, a crucial time. We are in the pre-election period now, um, uh, in which the character of a leader, and Keir Starmer is not well known as a leader because he is so new to politics. Most leaders are defined uh, by how they have responded before they became a leader to something that has happened in their party, you know, where, where they stood on, I don't know, uh, you know, the modernization of Labour under Kinnock, say, like Blair and Brown, and Kinnock was defined by not voting for Tony Benn in the 81 deputy leadership thing. There's nothing like that with uh, Keir Starmer. He was defined by being a director of public prosecutions. Um, and what followed during his brief period uh, as a Labour MP before he became leader. Anyway, thank you very much, uh, Gail. Um, uh, yeah, we've got uh, a lot coming up uh, in response to Canon Paul Arbuthnot's comments about Ireland and whether there are parallels with the peace process in Northern Ireland. Can we cling to a hope that where Northern Ireland led, perhaps uh, Israel uh, Palestine can follow. But uh, just before that, uh, Ian Manners writes, I'm a big fan of the podcast. Thank you. And recommend it to anyone who's interested in politics. Thank you, Ian. Yeah, if you could all do that, that would be great because we expand the cooperative and go up these charts that um, uh, in, a, in a crowded field, we're doing fine. Let's get better. Uh, I imagine you've dealt with the things I'm going to raise as I'm a bit behind on the podcast listening. Keep up with the podcast listening, Ian. There's a lot going on. Um, there's much call for a ceasefire in Gaza, but what does Israel get in return? 
Has anyone said how Hamas is, is to be held to account for what they did or what security guarantees will be given to Israel? Yeah, now these are very good questions and, if you like, are a, a counter to some of the emails I've read out already because there is this point. You see, a ceasefire, say we will explore all these terms, uh, those calling for a ceasefire are not going to say in a few weeks' time, all right, Israel, go back in and bomb the place to smithereens. Um, a ceasefire uh, really means an end to violence and looking for alternative means, which means a failure of Israel in uh, or the Israeli government, to be more precise, of its war aim, which incidentally will never be met. Uh, the destruction of Hamas. So, you know, all these calls for a ceasefire, it's almost impossible to see how the Israeli government uh, responds to them. Only in the end, I think Biden has such leverage. And even him, it's not clear. It's not quite clear at all that his hug-them-close approach has had too many uh, dividends um, so far. Um, so that is another thing, you know, if, if Starmer calls for a ceasefire, then he's quite capable of moving to that position. Um, of course, that won't change anything in practical terms. It, it's significant in the dynamic of British politics and the Labour Party. But um, such a call, which I suspect would only follow calls from Sunak and Biden anyway, uh, will not necessarily bring about such a thing. So, um, yeah, it, uh, thank you for that, Ian. It's, it's a good point. Now, remember, can and Paul Arbuthnot, last podcast, explain why there aren't parallels with uh, Northern Ireland. Now, Dominique Jewell, our correspondent in France, has had uh, an earlier, uh, how shall I put it, debate uh, with uh, Paul, um, when Paul argued that the DUP uh, had a pragmatic side that was often overlooked, Dominica came in and challenged this very strongly. Anyway, she's back. Uh, dear Steve, once again, I'm afraid I write to disagree with my fellow rock and roll politics listener, the Reverend Canon Paul Arbuthnot. Whilst he makes valid points in relation to the dangers of drawing parallels between the Israel-Hamas-Northern Ireland conflicts, his assessment of the Good Friday Agreement as a way of making one Northern Ireland acceptable to all is highly questionable. The Good Friday Agreement was designed specifically to allow citizens of Northern Ireland to identify as British, Irish or both with a mechanism embedded to allow for the possibility of a reunited Ireland should the stipulated conditions be met. Implicit in this, therefore, is that one Northern Ireland is indeed not acceptable to all and may in the future cease to exist as part of the UK. Uh, so, it's surely beyond doubt that the Good Friday Agreement was only possible with the engagement of all parties involved in the conflict, a key component of which was the convening of face-to-face -face talks between UK government ministers and detainees, Republican and loyalist, 
My hope and belief, based on the albeit imperfect Good Friday Agreement and its outcome, is that talks between Israeli nationalists and Hamas are not only possible, they are also inevitable if a solution is to be found. You see, yeah, in a way, uh, uh, Dominica, you capture what I dare to hope. You see, I can understand Paul uh, recognising, and he follows it closely day by day, the marked contrast, some of which you acknowledge, uh, with the situation in the Middle East. But it was the willingness of um, those who had taken part in violence to pursue a different course and, as you say, Dominica, meet each other to explore those options that changed everything. And it is the only way through this, or else by definition, if those engaged in force decide to stay engaged in force, this these killing fields will be uh, a feature for many, many months to come. Thank you very much. Now, on the same theme, uh, Steve Petrie uh, has joined this particular debate. I think trying to draw lessons uh, for the conflict in Gaza from Northern Ireland is complicated because the conditions that have to be addressed in Gaza are largely specific to that conflict and don't replicate those of Northern Ireland. So Steve kind of backing Canon Paul here to pick only one important example from Northern Ireland, which won't imply in Gaza, both the UK and the Republic of Ireland were members of the EU, allowing differences between the conflicting parties about national identity and the operation of sovereignty to be reframed. This worked at both administrative and emotional levels, which is important as peace can only be achieved if the emotional impulses fueling a conflict are addressed. It's very interesting, the EU dimension, which of course we have now jeopardised, not we, uh, Johnson and Frost jeopardised with their Brexit deal um, uh, was was central. But in a way, the point Dominica and I have been making is a slightly different one, uh, uh, which is, of course, there are uh, n- there aren't precise parallels beyond that one of if not force what. And the what is those who have been engaging in force engage with each other. Um, As I said at the start of the live show at King's Place the other day, um, there are only two means of resolving differences. One is politics, words in which one side prevails over the other through politics, or force in which one side kills the other lot and then the other lot try to kill the other lot. That's what we're in at the moment. And the only other option is what did in the end happen in Northern Ireland. John Austin uh, writes, I have so many questions about the Middle East. Um, We are going to move on to something else very uh, after this one. But uh, John Austin, uh, are we seeing a concerted effort to challenge the USA by a number of hostile countries? The timing of the Hamas attack on Israel could easily draw the US into a second proxy war, which could reduce their support to Ukraine. Significantly, Putin is hosting an Iranian Hamas delegation in Moscow. North Korea is now sending weapons to Russia and could be a conduit for China. Is annexation of Taiwan next? 
are we these are the ingredients for world war three yeah john thank you very much for uh, by the way thank you for the very kind words about the podcast and thank you for uh depressing us all even more because you are right all of us who kind of looked at history can see the ingredients for a, a, a bigger global conflict here uh we must hope it doesn't get to that but the, there are some parallels with, with 1914 but the US, in a way, is pivotal to all of this now. And it certainly has influence over uh, the Israeli government that no one else can have. Um, but yeah, you can see how the seeds are being sown for a much wider conflict. The interconnections are frightening. You know, last week, I think Putin saw uh, people from Iran, from North Korea, as you mentioned, uh, John. And uh, yeah, it's it, this is kind of dangerous. Diplomacy is, is working the other way, trying to constrain those who might want to get involved uh, in the Middle East. Uh, but the Middle East is a tinderbox. And anyway, there's going to be much more of this in the coming weeks. But thank you. Do keep uh, writing with your thoughts. Join our uh, debates on this and other matters. I'm now going to move on to a few other issues. I've been wanting to read this out for a bit. I think I mentioned it. Uh, Fraser Ode says, uh, Suella Bradman has made various rivers of blood type speeches and remains in the cabinet Unlike Enoch Powell, who delivered the famous Rivers of Blood speech in 1968, that's my impression of Enoch Powell, who Heath sacked right away. Do you think we should reassess Heath? Was he a strong leader? The case for sacking Powell shows he had a strong grip on party discipline. Uh, with Thatcher in his cabinet, he evidently didn't surround himself with yes people. He took Britain into the common market. And I can't see any current government being able to push through something as bold as the three-day week. Yeah, you got me thinking, Fraser. Uh, I've mentioned before, it's an interesting parallel. Uh, Sunak brought Braverman back. She had been sacked as Home Secretary by Liz Truss. Now, to be sacked by Liz Truss is quite something for not being good enough to survive a Liz Truss premiership. And Sunak brought her back. Uh, the moment Powell, who was a much bigger figure than Braverman and had big support in the Conservative Party, made that speech, Heath sacked him. Heath was leader of the opposition at the time, not prime minister. Um, and you're right, it, it was a titanic achievement, whether you're a Eurosceptic or not, to get Britain into Europe. Uh, several prime ministers had tried and failed. Heath pulled it off. And the three-day week is really interesting because it is cited as part of the chaos of the final months of Heath's leadership, but it was the exact opposite. Um, it was a symptom of chaos in that uh, the miners' strike was causing uh, mayhem. Uh, but the three-day week was an example of planning that worked. It wouldn't be done now because planning is so unfashionable as a concept and um, uh, so, so uh, Sunak would just have a laissez-faire approach to a crisis and Kirstarmer would have to approach, uh, after the focus groups would say, no, this would be too statist, he probably wouldn't do it. But the three-day week worked because actually what happened was Britain did use much less 
fuel during the three-day week, but productivity remained almost as high as when people were doing a five-day week. Um, And it actually... uh, was one example, uh, whereas before, of course, there were power cuts suddenly. Now, in the build-up to the February 74 election, many people say, oh, yeah, there's chaos, power cuts. There weren't power cuts. Um, That happened earlier in Heath's turbulent prime ministerialship. But uh, the three-day week was carefully planned, in a panic, of course, because uh, Britain was running out of energy, as ever. But... um, it worked. And and you're right, I think he was a formidable figure. He was hopeless at dealing with people. He was an odd man. Uh, but uh, I think he was a big figure. And yet he was still overwhelmed by the challenges he faced. And uh, I, I think if Keir Starmer gets in, he needs to be a absolutely focused change maker, Uh, Because if someone like Heath can get overwhelmed by the sheer scale of the task, uh, it was out within just over three and a half years, of course. Um, uh, Kisama, who's much less experienced than Heath as a politician, could face a similar sort of fate. Now, I've had lots of messages from our white van man, Andy Davis, And I've got some news to report because Andy asked me to report it. Typical of Andy, you see, he kind of keeps us informed with what White Van Man is thinking, which is very important for us in the cooperative. Um, But he's told me he just had no symptoms, uh, but went for the usual tests and they discovered he's got prostate cancer. Uh, and uh, they've discovered it very early on. So Andy touched wood, fingers crossed, for all of us in the cooperative, we'll be thinking of Andy. Uh, uh, it's going to be treated, and it'll be treated quickly, and touch wood, he'll be fine. But he wanted me to say to all men in the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative, do the test, get tested. Uh, and, it, uh, you know, because either they identify and you can be sorted, or you haven't got it, and then you're all right. And so, Andy, not only keeping us informed on all the political thinking amongst his mates in the white van community, uh, wanted me to mention that. And good luck, Andy. I know you're getting the treatment as this podcast uh, goes out. Um, So, uh, yeah, hope it uh, goes well. I'm sure it will. Um, uh, Richard Newman says, been listening uh, to the podcast for a couple of years, having been recommended to do so by a friend, a banker hedge fund type. Yeah, actually, rock and roll politics uh, know a lot of uh, hedge fund banker types who who listen. Uh, anyway, I'm a huge fan. Oh, thank you, Richard. I've been listening to every episode since. Uh, I'm listening to the most recent pod, Embed. And while I instinctively agree with you, Uh, with your general argument on the topic of treasury orthodoxy and its stifling effects. Yeah, there was a question last week uh, in our Question Time special about whether there needs to be a counter to the treasury, has it ever worked, and so on. Um, Anyway, Richard writes, it struck me that the use of the term itself is in danger of slipping into the realms of the kind of imprecision that we rail against in the cooperative. What do we mean by the term 
treasury orthodoxy? A brilliant question, Richard, and you're right. I kind of lapsed into accepting it as a term. We need to challenge it. Do we mean by it, Richard asks, balancing the books in a Thatcherite way? Not that she typically managed to do that exactly, yeah. Uh, nor did George Osborne, by the way, who made it his raison d'etre and uh, mesmerised the media into making it the challenge of our times. He never got near balancing the books. Do we mean anti-inflation? Good point. The Treasury always wants to bear down on inflation. Or perhaps how higher tax rates supposedly impact incentives and productivity. All are different things, and it will be helpful to hear what you think we mean when we use the term. Yeah, well, just very quick, there's a whole podcast to be done on these terms. Uh, and in less busy times, perhaps we could explore them more. But I suppose what I, I was meaning in the context of HS2 and things, the Treasury instinct is always against things like uh, big infrastructure projects, uh, uh, public spending increases, especially current spending. Uh, they see it as a triumph, always to clamp down, even though the Keynesian argument is, of course, that, uh, that these kind of uh, projects can lead to uh, economic growth. But you're right, it needs to be defined more clearly. And I kind of lapsed into just saying, oh, yeah, treasury orthodoxy. Uh, thank you very much for alerting us to this. Now, Sean Colston has written saying, so many of the questions from Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative are well considered, intelligent and analytical, but I wanted to ask something less serious. I think this is the most serious question of the lot, Sean. Uh, you have spoken previously about politics being a noble vocation, and I wondered whether you'd ever considered standing as an MP. Uh, uh, perhaps Keir Starmer has shown it's never too late. Uh, I'm sure you could count on support from everyone in the rock and roll politics community. Well, that's a great start. Yeah, there's, I, I would have always, uh, I think politics is a noble vocation. I think it is more uh, important uh, and interesting than political journalism, which is the route I have chosen so far. Um, but yeah, no, I've always wanted to be uh, an MP and think it's, really important and interesting and exciting so i kind of envy those in politics a lot of those in politics envy us a lot in the media um and some turn to that of course matthew paris has always said it's much more fun being in the media than being in uh, an mp which he was um but i've kind of think being an mp is 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 the ultimate really so yeah i i'd do it tomorrow um on other thank you sean i know you've written about other things but i'll stick to that now because we've had so many questions this is going to be a long podcast this one but we are in the midst of many interconnected crises that i think we all need to run a half marathon and listen to the podcast this week or when you're baking bread uh, or homemade jam and thanks again for the homemade jam uh helen different helen to helen the baker um yeah just do just do more because we're in the midst of so many interconnected crises that we all need to keep together to make sense of it all um uh yeah on uh the timing of the election which was a theme at uh, the last live show venetia kane writes uh i can be much more specific she said she voted for october 
uh, but she's very precise about the election. So take a note of this. It will be before the clocks change. It'll obviously not be May. And if Rishi Sunak seeks advice from the party machine, he will not go for December or January. Canvassers won't knock on doors in the dark, uh, not least because it can be counterproductive. And it will be before the clocks go back in October for the same reason. So it will be October, but before the clocks go back, they've just gone back. So before where we are now. Um, so it'll be that kind of Thursday before the clocks go back, in October next year. So clear your diaries for that. Now, uh, on the matter, which I referred to in a different context earlier of Brexit, uh, Nick in Edinburgh has started a great debate. Was the result of Brexit, it was based, by the way, on Nick's uh, reading a chapter on Brexit in my book, Turning Points, available in all good bookshops and on Amazon and all the other places that you can get them online. And uh, Nick disagreed with me. I argue that it was inevitable from the moment Cameron called the bloody thing. Uh, uh, Nick says it was the contribution of Johnson and co that made a difference. Um, And he said this generates a wider debate. What changes things? Great figures tidal waves underneath the great figures or what anyway uh rob winnett writes many thanks for the podcast which i enjoy every week from here on the south coast of ireland how beautiful to be on the south coast of ireland uh this week i have covid oh not so beautiful my wife anne hasn't yet succumbed so i'm isolating much to more the cat's disgust as i'm in her room this is getting very complicated rob as to uh where you are um anyway I just wanted to support the point you made about the Brexit referendum being doomed from the start. In my opinion, too little has been made of the fact that for many people, it was an emotional decision, not a political or economic one. The morning after the result was announced, my then nearly 90-year-old dad phoned from the UK and quoted Martha Luther King's, free at last, thank God almighty, we are free at last. What an interesting, revealing response. And note the word free. This word freedom remains potent. The uh, Shadow Education Secretary, Bridget Phillipson, is uh, one of the few in politics at the moment to use freedom to put her case for improving education. And uh, I I, I so agree, uh, and, and, and she does it with real potency. Uh, and uh, other her colleagues should listen to what Bridget says and follow that argument. Uh, I so agree with Rob. It was an emotional thing, uh, and there was this sense of being free from something that had become uh, close to kind of tyrannical. Brussels, in inverted commas. Um, uh, yeah. Um, and, and he adds rather movingly, it was our last argument before he died later that year, but fortunately not our last conversation. Well, it was a fruitful argument in that I think your dad did highlight what many people felt about Brexit who voted for Brexit. I'll repeat it. Free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. 
Um, now, when Bridget Phillipson uses freedom, she does it in a, in a way that is far more constructive. The power of education to free people to fulfill their potential. And it can be used in all kinds of different ways. Shaw Danaher also writes, there are two essential factors that need to be in place for any referendum. Uh, the first one, there must be absolute clarity as to the uh, two different outcomes. Leave, in this case, had to be absolutely tightly defined with a white paper or string of white papers. Otherwise, it could mean anything. And of course, that didn't happen with the Brexit referendum. Uh, Cameron has so much to answer for. The second most important thing of running a balanced referendum is an independent body such as a referendum commission, set up both to explain impartially what both outcomes mean and to rigorously police disinformation. Of course, that didn't happen either. Um, so, um, yeah, uh, it, there was no explanation big word in our podcast explanation. Um, none of this happened. Um, and and uh, he also agrees with me, the referendum was lost before the campaign started. The only surprise was that the leave margin of victory was so small. I agree with you. Nick, what are your thoughts about those two points? Uh, Nick, who started this debate. Um, okay, what else? What else? God, there's so many here. I, I still haven't got to Robert Parker's definition of a centrist, but Robert, if it's okay with you, we'll do a whole podcast on this or as one of as a theme meriting more length. Uh, if you haven't heard your email read out in that context, email me again to remind me. Uh, Sean Briggs, our Norwich correspondent, writes, uh, what strategy do you think Labour should take for the next election? Play it safe with limited promises, but limiting the room for governing. Level with awe, level with the electorate that the country is in a real mess. Tough decisions will be necessary. And asking for a mandate of more radical uh, change. I feel that the first is most likely to give a sizable majority, but I fear it will lead to problems in the medium term. The second strategy will give a tougher election campaign, but a bit like the Conservatives in 2010, Labour should then be able to focus the anger more on the current administration and then have more space afterwards. Uh, yeah, I think they need space in government. Uh, it's interesting that you mentioned what Cameron and Osborne did in the build-up to 2010. They didn't win an overall majority, uh, but through the gullibility of Nick Clegg, they were given the space to implement most of a very radical manifesto, and they did it quickly. Uh, now, actually, I think a lot of it was against the mood of the country at the time, and they then only won a tiny overall majority at the next election. They didn't even expect to do that. Um, then Theresa May lost that overall majority. So they've sort of been clinging to power before the landslide in December 2019, which was uh, a Brexit election. But, um, uh, you know, anyway, again, it's a theme. I think Sean, uh, our Norwich correspondent for a, a whole podcast, and it will be one of the themes of our cooperative together, you know, the, the, the precise positioning of a Labour government to have space to do things when that Labour government wins. Another big difference between Blair in 97 and Starmer now is that Blair 
inherited quite a few radical policies that were already in place from Killock and Smith. I don't think it's what excited Blair particularly. He used to call it low-hanging fruit, the minimum wage, and signing up to the social chapter and various kind of employment changes and so on. But uh, they were all there, whereas Samus started with a complete blank sheet and, as say, post the Hartlepool by-election, turned to uh, New Labour incrementalism as mythologized in a way by uh, some of Tony Blair's followers and perhaps Tony Blair himself. It's very interesting how the recent past becomes completely misread, not least by the those who framed it. Uh, that's, a, that's a rich theme for a podcast. But look, this has been a very long one, and I'm sorry about that, but I think you'll all agree we've got a lot to get through. Um, I thought the question time element of the podcast would be less because we had our question time special at the end of last week. Um, but the questions are pouring in. I've got my computer up where I've sorted out some of the questions I'm going to read out. And as I've be reading them other questions have come in keep them coming in i don't know whether we'll need a bonus this week uh, uh depends on events i guess um but let's keep in touch on all fronts thanks so much for listening i hope you baked a whole roast dinner and hopefully a vegetarian roast dinner or what else or you run the half marathon or uh drank some very nice whiskey or walked up arthur's seat um, or uh, uh, watched a wonderful game of football in Belfast or whatever you do during uh, <laughs> these podcasts. But let's get together very soon again to make sense of it all. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye.